0: Welcome to the New Books in Psychoanalysis podcast. This is Philip Lance, your host for today. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Birksted Breen about her book, The Work of Psychoanalysis, Sexuality, Time, and the Psychoanalytic Mind. Dana Birksted Breen is a training and supervising psychoanalyst of the British Psychoanalytic Society, a member of the IPA and current Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Psychoanalysis. She was the editor of the new Library of Psychoanalysis for 10 years and is a psychoanalyst in private practice in London. So welcome to the program, Dr. Breen. Thank you. And so first of all, thank you so much for writing this book, because as a student and a, a candidate at an institute, I found it very helpful in my education and I, I kind of was thinking it I think it should be like it could be a great training guide for for seminars um for people because you you learn so much about fundamentals at least I did but um can you tell me what what led you to writing this book
1: I think I have to answer that question I first need to tell you how I come to write a paper my uh-huh. papers are always based on I suddenly I have an idea that comes basically from the consulting room, and maybe I don't know when they come and when they don't come, you know, and and it takes a long time for an idea to come. Um, when it suddenly arrives unbidden, I will think about it, and and that's how the paper starts. I won't necessarily, usually, in fact, I won't, you know, get down to writing it immediately. It's going to go around in my mind for quite a long time, and I'll be thinking about it, and and eventually, you know, it comes into a paper. So this also means that I'm I'm quite slow. I don't write papers very often. Um, partly because I don't have time, but partly also because of this way of proceeding that I just have to wait for something to happen in my mind. And this is also why I don't really uh, like to write on commission. I mean, people will say, you know, will you give a paper on such and such? And I usually, I, I often decline those invitations more often than mm-hmm. not, because it has to come from something I, I want to say and have to say. I also hate mm-hmm. repeating myself, <laughs> you know, so I, I want it to be something new that I have to say. And mm-hmm. um, and so, so that's how a paper happens. Now, in the case of this particular book, um, it was, I, I felt I had come to a point where I wanted to integrate and and produce something out of all the work I'd been doing over many years and which was basically published and some unpublished papers and in order to make it into a book I mean I was very keen that it should not be a collection of papers And Mm -hmm. also, I didn't really want it to be just what everybody's already read. You can get many of them in the International Journal. I wanted Mm -hmm. it to be something new as a whole. And so, it was something that I wanted to do for a number of years. I thought, you know, it would be a... I I was looking forward to that project, and I I really wanted to do it. It was a question of finding time, and again, the whole thing had to mature in my mind. So you know when i so, so anyway that's how it came to be but it was very uh-huh. important to me that it should not be a collection of papers and that's uh-huh. why i've added a lot of sections and put a lot of thought into how it would be constructed
0: is this your first book
1: no i've um well i my first book actually was i I wrote a PhD on changes in women with the birth of a first child. That was mm-hmm. in the early 70s. And that I decided to put into a book. For some reason, I've always been very interested in writing. I don't, I don't quite know why. Or, but so I was interested to put it in a book. And that was called The Birth of a First Child. It was published by Tavistock. And then so many women, you know, this was the sort of late, early 70s when there was a lot of interest about women and feminism and all that. And so a lot of people who were having babies read the book, although it's quite an academic, it's relatively academic book. Obviously, it was based on a PhD. Many women, I heard, were reading it who had nothing to do with psychology or psychoanalysis or anything. So I decided to write another book specifically aimed at those women. Mm. And I Mm -hmm. interviewed somebody throughout her pregnancy and the months afterwards. And that became the basis of a book called Talking with Mothers. And then after that, my, um, well, then I did, I, this was, in fact, I was, in, on this occasion, it was a sort of commission in that I was invited by the then editor of the New Library to do something on the topic of femininity, gender, etc. So I then did a book of editings, but it has a, uh, other people's papers, but it has a substantial, sort of very substantial introduction from myself, and it's called the Gender Conundrum. Um, and so that was published in the new library of psychoanalysis. And then there was another project, which again is, um, is sort of joint, which is in the new library and the teaching series called reading French psychoanalysis. And that, Uh that book was a very interesting project because, it was my idea that we should do that book, but I wasn't planning to be involved <laughs> in, in the actual doing of it. But in fact, the people I, I was talking to, I, I wanted to get them together doing the work. At that point, I was the editor of the new library, uh-huh. and I said, why don't you do this? And they wouldn't do it unless I got involved. <laughs> so so in fact, it was um, I an, another analyst from London, and myself, we joined up with Alain Gibo from the Paris Society, and that's how that book came about. And again, Sarah and I have a very substantial introduction that people have found very helpful for understanding French psychoanalysis. So this, my own sort of book, <laughs> um, comes out.
0: Okay. After. So... All right. Well, so yeah, there's three or four there. I, I actually I have the one reading oh, yeah. French psychoanalysis. I guess I thought, and I knew you were the editor, but I guess I didn't think. You- so it sounds like that was almost as much work as writing a whole book.
1: <laughs> that was a huge. That was a huge amount of work yeah. and very interesting work because it was all in in conversation with our uh-huh. colleague from Paris, and um, so it it was um, in fact a very satisfying. By the end, very satisfying. Very frustrating because, um, anyway, for all sorts of reasons. But it was very, uh, very satisfying.
0: Yeah, and you're uniquely, I guess, suited for that kind of work because you're fluent in French. That's right.
1: Yes. Well, I was brought actually. My parents were, in fact, New Yorkers, and I was an infant when they moved to Paris. So I was I was brought up basically bilingual, and I went through the um, the French system of education. And after that, after I did and then I did I s I did my first degree in, in Paris and after that I moved to the to the United Kingdom. So um yeah, so my my whole analytic training was in um England.
0: I, I want to go back to when you said that the ideas for your papers come from the consulting room, and I was really interested in that because I guess probably for other people it might be their ideas come from reading other books or authors. Mm-hmm. But I kind of heard there the the sort of – the a very Bionian flavor of kind of waiting until something happens that needs to be said. And um, are there – any other thoughts you have about is is that just your personal way it happens to work or do you think in re- psychoanalytic writing it's maybe necessary or important to begin with the consulting clinical work
1: uh, I don't think I can generalize I think uh, it's very much me and and how I do things I I I think I mean I think a lot of people probably think I'm a very very much of a theoretician, but I don't think of myself in that way. I I, I think of myself as being, you know, first and foremost, a clinician. Uh-huh. And that's what interests me. And when I have an idea that comes from my clinical work, I then go and research uh-huh. the literature so it doesn't go, you know, the other way around.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm having to write up a little blurb that will go on our website about the book. And I, I said something in there about it. Uh, you being a theorist, and then I thought, well, that's somehow that's not quite right, and I changed it to just an analyst. But, but you are extremely theoretically mm. well versed. Um, so, what's the difference between knowing theory so incredibly well as you do and being a theorist?
1: <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I am, uh, um, and you know, people might think of me as a theorist as, as you did at first. I think. I do believe that theory is important, that's number one, Mm -hmm. and I do also think that it's very important to be able to put one's idea within a theory, and as I said, I, I do a lot of work once I've had my thoughts to see, you know, what's been written, who's written about it, and how and where it fits in, and how it connects, and but having said all that, of course, theory permeates one. So I don't think one can say, I'm not in the consulting room with no theory. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I, I mean, I'm full of theory, clearly, mm-hmm. and and that will influence what I see and what I do. But it, it will be, you know, if there's something that strikes me, it will be within that general framework, presumably, either because it's different or whatever, and I wouldn't write be interested in writing about something that's obviously already said um, you know or, or known. Um, i and-
0: want I want to come back to this a little later this idea because it's it's something I'm learning about from you and and other authors like Rachel Blass about this kind of importance of sticking with or knowing the theoretical traditions but but before we get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, this book has some previously published papers, a few, and then some new, um, new material. To me, it did feel like it really held together. Um, although the only way I did see kind of a disjunction in, in the chapters was there was a couple at the beginning that seemed very dense about, um, what were they? One was chapter two, I think, modalities of thought and sexual identity. And then chapter three, the feminine and unconscious representations of feminine, femininity. Um, those two were, I kind of struggled with, and then I think chapter four or five, we get to sexuality in the consulting room where things kind of livened up a lot for me. But I was wondering, can you talk about, or tell me, in what sense the book is is a whole, and also am I right in seeing something different between those first couple chapters?
1: Um, Well, first of all, the thing about the whole, I think, as I said earlier, for me, a book is not just a collection of ideas. I mean, I see it as a sort of entity, um, a creation in a way. And I I wanted to create something that, that worked in its writing and structure as a book. So I'm very happy that that's how you saw it. And how you know you read it, because that was exactly what I was aiming for, and for that reason, that's why I added, for instance, um, that first chapter called Setting the Scene. I saw that as very important because, in there, I explain what my basic conception of psychoanalysis is, and therefore, the, le- the chapters after that can all be read within that framework, in in a sense, um, that they're my basic ways of being in the consulting room and thinking in the consulting room. Um, now, about, and and the other thing is that I decided that I wasn't, because it wasn't a collection of papers, I wasn't going to put them in chronological order. However, it's also the case that my interest moved throughout the years that are covered by this book, which are a lot of years. And my interest, I mean, to begin with, I did a lot of work on, starting with my PhD, in a sense, on femininity, the feminine, and then there came a point, uh, and women, which is not the same as the feminine. And I, I then, then there came a point when I felt okay, you know, I, I, I found myself gradually moving to wanting to be becoming more interested in the masculine. And that's when, at about that time, I wrote the paper, the one. Called as uh, Link, etc. That that paper was was ke- came from my wish. Again, it wasn't a conscious decision. It's something that came about from my work and interest that I I was focusing interested on the masculine element in the psyche and. Then, and, and so it moved in that direction, and then I became more interested in thinking about the processes that take place in the psychoanalyst's mind, the issues of, you know, the state of mind of the psychoanalyst, which is sort of central to the, the latter papers in the book. So so first of all, to say that it follows that sort of course, and because it. Chronologically, that happened. it meant that many of the papers that are at the end of the book it's not true of the very last chapter, in fact, but all you know a number of them at the end were written recently, and a number of the ones at the beginning were the first papers I wrote um, and I've lost your question. Yes, and, and so, yeah, yeah, no, no, I haven't lost your question. So so it's, it's true that I, I, I would say, I, I can see why you say that about uh, Chapter 2, the modes, what is it, whatever it's called. Yeah, that's a bit heavy, and I think there's hardly any clinical material in that one um but the next one i i'm i'm more surprised um the feminine and the unconscious representation of femininity which in fact is a paper and that one i think was a commission even though i say i i don't often we, um from the um, the journal of the american psychoanalytic association they had an issue some kind of issue anniversary issue um, and they asked me for a paper and that, that paper, I, I may have modified it for the book, I can't remember now, but it's based on a, a paper there which I think is not so difficult to to read so um, I'm more surprised you say that about number three, I can see about number two <laughs> chapter two um, and I can see what you're saying the other, the other, all the others are more, speak more directly, clinically
0: yeah, I, I think as the book, the first chapter I did love, um, and I it was like, oh, thank goodness I'm reading this book because I was at sort of a hard p- place in my psychoanalytic training, and, and you need to read things that inspire you for what this work is about. And in the first few years of training, often we're reading Freud and or Melanie Klein, and, and um, I have my own sort of opinions about I think we need to be from the get-go reading more current theorists or writers to sort of, because as your book goes on, it feels to me it gets more and fresher and and more Mm -hmm. really deeply moving um, and important, I think. um, We'll get to that about, I think, the contributions you're making about the importance of time and temporality in psychoanalysis. But but going back, um, to get back to this question of... um, I don't know, maybe a conservative slant in your approach to psychoanalysis. There was in one of those first couple chapters where you were talking about identity, and I think you said identity is not a psychoanalytic concept, something like that. Identification is, but identity technically is not. And so that, I remember, um, interested me about, oh, there's certain words uh, that are um, expressed Narrowly psychoanalytic and others that aren't. Although you go on then and talk in the latter part of the book about time. I mean, is time a psychoanalytic concept? Um, So maybe you can sort out my confusion about what's psychoanalytic and what isn't, um, and what, yeah, what.
1: Yes. No. I, I did also, you know, think quite a bit about that because, of course, identity is talked about. All the time, in a way, in psychoanalysis. But I think psychoanalysis has more, perhaps, been interested in the in the splits and in whether you're thinking in terms of you know psychic structure, ego, super ego, etc., or internal objects, or or split off parts of the self, etc. So the whole notion of identity is quite complex, because what forms identity? Identity is something conscious, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's not... Un- mm-hmm. You know, identification, there may be unconscious identifications, but identity is a self-acknowledged something, <laughs> um, sense of self or or description of self. So it's not really uh, based on... An un- I mean, it's not describing... The unconscious, you might identify think you're something, but actually, there are unconscious parts of you that are completely unrecognized. Mm. I'm sure there are, Mm -hmm. um, etc. So, so I think that's why, you know, that there's an issue about is it a psychoanalytic term? But I also because I tend to be thinking, for instance, in terms of the sort of Dictionary, the Laplanche and Pontalis dictionary, there's no entry for that uh-huh. for identity. So that,
0: I almost went and looked to see if there's an entry for time in the Laplanche. No, it
1: yeah. probably uh-huh. isn't actually. <laughs> it's a good point. But um, it, uh, yes, but, but in a sense, time, when I talk about time, I'm also not using it. As a psychoanalytic uh-huh. concept, um, we can talk about the kinds of times that one finds in the unconscious. It, you know, there's atemporality, and there's um, the nachträglichkeit, uh-huh. the après coup, etc. So, there are different kinds of times. So, so, it would be a sort of generic thing, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be an actual concept, it would be a generic way of grouping different phenomena.
0: Yes, and okay, so so there's psychoanalytic concepts that have a lineage and a history, and then there's these broader ideas. I will say that the, for me, the most important part of the book was this idea of how time and temporality, and maybe a temporality, are so central to the psychoanalytic um, endeavor i'd never realized so much how so much of what we do is involving um, sort of movements across time or through time with our patients and I felt like i mean maybe there's a whole literature there that, that I wasn 't aware of, but somehow it really sunk into me and it it made me begin thinking about this issue of when we think of the the internal world, it seems like maybe there's a shift happening in psychoanalysis from, um, metaphors of space and, and internal objects and structures and spaces to more moving in the direction of time, um, phenomena of temporality that has to do with movement and processes and, and functions, um, And uh, is that, as the editor of this psychoanalytic world, do you see, is there a shift happening there? And is there something, do you put more emphasis in your writing and work on time than on space?
1: Well, I have, yes, because I, I have felt, as you picked up from my book, I have felt that, time, temporality, the different forms of temporality are so central to absolutely everything in psychoanalysis and, and our clinical practice, and, and they go in different directions. I mean, there's, the, in a way, the, the conflict or the um, there's a kind of paradox about the atemporality of the unconscious and what happens within the session. And the sort of strict temporality of the beginning and the end of sessions, just to, you know, mention one thing. And I think it's, it's everything. You can see everything, the, the capacity to wait, the, the, the stuckness, the stuckness in the past, you know, the, the grievance which promotes stuckness in patients. It's what also, mm-hmm. Uh, in cases of impacts, you know you can see the kind of grievance that won't let go you can't move on can't move into the future, so mm-hmm. I think that the fluidity of being able to move backwards and then forwards is would be as you know what we would want to promote and um, linked with mental health in a sense
0: it It makes me think of um the cover of your book. Which I actually unlike most of the books that i re- interview people about I, I read this one twice just because it's um it's uh I felt like for my own education i needed i wanted to just digest more of it <clears throat> um and so I've been living with the photo or the picture on the cover, which is i'm looking at it now it's i guess it's like a public fountain in a in a on a street and and there's this there's water jets um coming up from the surface, creating kind of a screen of water and then there's a there's a little girl in front she's in a bathing suit maybe she's i don't know six or five or six years old kind of in a in a an interesting pose with her arm out and and then there's some people sort of in the background of the shadows of the the water um but there's something about the picture that really Evokes some something in me that's sort of nostalgic, and anyway, I wondered if you could say anything about the the picture.
1: I'm really glad you liked the picture because, first of all, I want to say that when I took over uh, as editor of the new library, I the books at the time had no image on the front, and I was the person who was instrumental in you know, getting us to have an image on the book. But also, not just that, I I really encouraged authors to think about what kind of image they would want and to work with the designer to have the picture that they felt really represented the book. Sometimes it's been more successful than others. And I also um, encourage those who, you know, had something personal uh, for instance, Michael Feldman, it turns out, likes to take photographs, so I encouraged him to put on the cover of his book a photograph that he had taken. And and, I, and by the way, um, ima- an image appeared also on the International Journal when I became Editor-in-Chief. Um, those are a bit different because we've cho- chosen Greek myths, um, but again, I thought it was important to have something um, visual so to come back to my own book you know there was a question of what i would do and i was a bit hesitant about this but this is just basically a photo i took uh, amongst many photos of my granddaughter (laughs) and this was indeed it was a very hot summer day and behind it is I think it's at the national theater it's it's on it's on the the Thames in London, and they had this fountain and people were running in and out of the fountain and I don't know why she had her bathing suit that day and the, in fact it's even better when it's you know not on the cover of the book because it was it was very dramatic very sur- very very surreal even more surreal than comes out there was a, also a very great contrast of light and dark and um of the sun shining and the more shadows here they've only you can only really see mainly one shadow but there were lots of shadows, some of them almost ominous. And, uh, and, and I, I don't know, I just, I just thought, well, this was, it, it's a surreal aspect. And I thought, I called it dream work because I thought it is a bit like a dream. And I thought you could think of it as either this is the girl's dream or the girl is in the dream. And there's these strange things happening behind, and then there's this sort of structure at the back that could be like a castle, you know, like a child's fairy tale story. And then I don't know if you noticed, there's even a couple just behind her. So I was slightly disappointed by the rendering of it, so, but, I, but I'm glad it still comes across in that way. So, and I also thought it, you know, one could read it as to do with femininity gender etc she's got this sort of self-assertive somewhat what could say phallic pose you know i I thought it brought out a lot of the themes from the book for me i didn't know if anybody else (laughs) would see that
0: Uh, it, it did for me in some ways it does what the book does it sort of brings together um so many fundamental factors of what is psychoanalysis and in a in a whole sort of synthetic way with this one image, and I guess that could be a question for you is is that what you see yourself doing? I got the sense very much that you you've read so much, being the editor of the IJP, um, and yet and you synth. Is it integrate or synthesize? Maybe those are synonyms, but I don't know if there's maybe one more, or maybe there is a distinction between those two words, but it seems very much what you do very successfully in in this book.
1: I I would say that it's the other way around. I think I became the editor-in-chief of the International Journal because I'm interested in different ways of seeing things, and I've always had this wish Hmm. to bring to bring together, which I think has to do also with my upbringing between two cultures. And um, so, yes, I think that integrating is something that's very important to me. And indeed, the image, you know, it's the book, the book itself is a product that integrates the writing with the cover, it's all part of a whole. And in terms of theory and all, I would say It's a bit complicated because I think that one can't just integrate anything. I mean, things don't integrate (laughs) with others. Um, And there has to be distinction and and not everything goes. And one theory Uh may be incompatible with another. So integration would mean, from my perspective, I'm putting certain things together. Um, That's my integration. But yes, it's something that I'm very... I'm always doing, in a sense.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you you bring things together. And for instance, you clearly know Lacan very well. Um, and there's places where he's cited and referenced um, as a in ways you've made use of him. I think in your integration. And then there's other ways where you mention where you kind of uh, differentiate yourself from Lacanian thought. I guess. Primarily with um, maybe that the, the neglect of the body would it be in Lacan? Is that? Can you say something about that? Because sexuality and the body seem to be very fundamental to your mm-hmm. your writing.
1: Yeah, well, that was also that's one of the criticisms that um, other French psychoanalysts have made of Lacan. You know, the ones who aren't part of his school. That he sort of did away with the body and with affect, and they've wanted to bring that back in. So, I I would not say I'm a, an expert on Lacan; far from it. But I know something about his work, um, which is is uh, I, you know for those who don't know the scene in France not all French psychoanalysts are Lacanian. They've been extremely mm-hmm. influenced by Lacan. Uh, but sometimes they've been influenced and in the sense that they've then decided to go in a different direction. So... But but I think that... Inter- yeah, I mean, integration also... I mean, I'm interested in this integration, but I'm also interested in always questioning because, mm-hmm. for instance... You know, I question a lot of, I mean, I look at the different theoretical points of view and then I also distinguish myself from them and question them.
0: Right. Yeah. I found, I find that very helpful as a student. I really appreciate kind of compare and contrast sort of style of, of learning, um, which is partly why I've gone off and started reading books and then interviewing people as part of my own way of learning, um, because i feel like that's we don't really know our what implicit theories we're working with mm-hmm. i think we need to know them right and 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 one way you do that is by seeing how they're different from other theories and um but let me ask a question about um there's there's i see we have like 10 minutes left or so and i so many questions i'd like to dig into but I was um, going back to this idea of what is a psychoanalytic concept and what isn't. I was at the IPA conference in Congress in Buenos Aires, and there was a panel there that I think you were the chair of the panel, and I think Rachel Blass read a paper. It was about intimacy, which was the theme of that Congress, and Rachel was, I don't remember it exactly, but somehow um, she was pointing out how we need to be really clear about What intimate that intimacy, although you could it has a lot to do with what we're doing with our clients and working on, she again was distinguishing that it's not a technically psychoanalytic concept. So maybe I'll read a little quote from you in your book where you say, um, multilingualism in psychoanalysis can be enriching or dangerous, enriching when there is a deep understanding of the different languages and dangerous when concepts are appropriated without consideration for the total grammar leading to distortion, reductionism, and misunderstandings. So Mm -hmm. I think we've touched on this a little bit. Is is that anything more you want to say about that?
1: Yes, I mean, what I have in mind... uh, By the way, uh, earlier I didn't say anything about you using the word conservative. I mean, in a sense... Uh I think I want to answer that one first. I mean the question of conservative I, I do think that if we're talking about psychoanalysis we are talking about something that developed from Freud and of course there are there were and are developments and you know it's not by any means static but we we have to retain a certain um, basic of what we call psychoanalysis. So, I mean, some basics would be, you know, belief in, in unconscious processes and the notion of psychic reality and of transference. Otherwise, it's fine. Somebody wants to do something that discards all those things. You know, I do it doesn't matter to me, but it matters if they call it psychoanalysis. It seems to me that, you know... One could call it therapy or anything else. So, you know, I thought I wanted to say that about conservatism. Uh, it, it's about what we define as psychoanalysis. I, I think for me that's quite important. And uh, in fact, in the journal, we we did a I think we did a controversy on the whole question of what psychotherapy and what psychoanalysis. Well, I mean, there's a lot more mm-hmm. to be said on that subject, obviously, but in terms of knowing a theory i mean, because and that actually had links with what I was going to say next, because for instance, the notion of reverie, which you will have noticed I use a lot because I find that very interesting um in many of my papers. If you take it away from the whole context of Bionian theory, then it's quite distorted. So people talk about reverie as anything that the analyst is thinking about. Well, no, Mm -hmm. that's not how Bion used it. Bion used it in a very specific way and related to other concepts that he was using. Similarly, the notion of containment, that people now think that containment means you just sit there, you know, (laughs) uh, with your patient and contain. Well, no, I mean, containment has very, you know, specific aspects to it. So I think that if you're going to use a concept from a theory, you need to understand what that theory is if you want to use a different file, you can call something something else but i don't think it's Uh it's helpful if you're going to use a term that Uh was specifically created within a particular theory and sort of distorted into some something else
0: Uh uh-huh I guess let that be a lesson to anybody submitting a paper to the, in, the IJP. Do your homework uh, on what your, these words mean. Um, let's let's try to get two more questions in. And, and you know, you mentioned earlier the penis as link, which I found uh, just a terrific chapter. And maybe it illustrates you bring you do so much in in bringing together. Um, I don't know, Kleinian and. Oedipal, classical Freudian ideas in that chapter. Maybe you could explain briefly what to the reader, listeners, what what that penis's link is, so they'll get a flavor for how some of the things you write about.
1: Again, that's an idea that started. Sorry, I have to drink some water.
0: <clears throat> okay.
1: It started again in the consulting room, and. I was, I was very struck by, well, first of all, as I explained earlier, I was interested in the male element at that point and the masculine. And, and in fact, it's in relation to women patients that I first thought about this idea mm. that women who behaved, say, in a phallic way, in fact, did not really recognize the masculine element, or a different kind of masculine element, by which I mean that what I call penis and link, and I think this can be misunderstood, I'm referring specifically to something in the parental couple, what links the parental couple, and what creates the triangular structure of self um, mm-hmm. in relation to the parental couple. I wasn't, I mean, although people have seemed to really like the notion of penis as link, I wasn't quite sure it was quite the right term, but I couldn't think of a better one. I mean, I thought of the structuring penis, but that was a bit strange. Because what I have in mind is we're not talking about either the biological penis, or, but we're talking about you know, um, sort of unconscious element and structure which is sort of necessary, I suppose, and I I contrast it to the phallus. Now, the phallus, if we think of Freud's theory and his idea of the phallic stage, is that there's an unconscious fantasy that either you have it or you don't. There's, it's not an idea of difference in the sense of there's, you know, a male and a female. There's just the male and the castrated male, in a sense, and mm-hmm. and it's a fa- I mean, it's, it's it's a fantasy. Of course, then other people like Melanie Klein have said, well, no, but there's always a conception of the vagina as well, etc. But that's that's not the point. The point is that there's this idea of something that you, you either you have it or you don't have it, and which, of course, is a very narcissistic kind of idea, and that's the whole notion of phallic narcissism. And the people, men or women, who have to sort of be that phallus to make themselves feel integrated or, you know, that's an identity, isn't it, <laughs> that we were talking about earlier? It's sort of, I have it all. <laughs> Is, is the phallus, uh-huh. and I was contrasting that. And, and in the phallus, not, there aren't three people. There, there's the, the two, the one who has it and the one who doesn't, and that's very different from the structure in which there is the self in relation to the couple. So the penis as link really referring to that couple, the acceptance of that couple and the self in relation to it. That makes sense
0: uh-huh. yeah, so it's a it's a psychoanalytic concept, penis as link, but um that actually I found so helpful in beginning to organize what i'm seeing it's in the consulting room and helping me um make sense of that I found it a very useful idea. Let me see. I only have a few minutes, so I kind of (laughs) want to ask you two questions at once, sort of, and then you can maybe take two or three minutes to sort of. But um, anything that comes to mind about what's important uh, for psychoanalysis as a as an intellectual tradition to really survive and thrive in the world today. and then we obviously finish with what, what other writing projects are you working on now?
1: Well, the survival, I have to say that, I mean, I would say that there's always, I don't, you know, people say now, you know, psychoanalysis won't survive. But I think there's always been an issue about the survival of psychoanalysis. I mean, in, I, I, I think in the UK there's never been a heyday of psychoanalysis. And, you know, you don't get people... Doctors don't refer people for psychoanalysis. It's just never been like that. I know it was different in the States, but in a way, I think it it can't be. If it's too popular, there's something wrong because it's not easy to accept the unconscious and all the, you know, terrible things that go on in the unconscious. And, And there are many aspects, you know, that, that are very difficult and, and the clinical practice is extremely difficult and painful. And, um, you know, I think it's the best, the best of what we've got, but it's certainly, you know, it's, it's not easy and not always successful. So I think it can only, I think it will continue. <laughs> I think it's got to, it's got to continue. And, um, I think as a clinical practice, you know, I think it needs to to show that it does save some people's lives actually um, and and that's the best we have so mm-hmm. far. Um, so I do have belief mm-hmm. in its survival. And my next project I mean, at this point, I don't know i mean my the thing I'm mainly working on is that we're having our the centenary of the International Journal of Psychoanalysis. With three, three conferences, the first hmm. one is in New York next year, in October, and it will be on the unconscious, mm-hmm. and uh, then we're having one in Buenos Aires, and then in London in 2019. Um, well, yeah. So I'm working on that, I'm writing also a paper for that, and I'm thinking of having an exhibition, which would be interesting, Connect. No, 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 not my personal, but, no, but an exhibition of the journal and, I don't know, something interesting, something, you know, that could be interesting to do um, in relation to, to that. So those are my projects and uh-huh. we'll just see, you know, as I said, something has to just develop and mature and happen.
0: Well, thank you very much for the book and for sharing your time to talk to me today from London.
1: Well, thank you very much for your interest.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Dana Berkstead Breen about her book, The Work of Psychoanalysis, Sexuality, Time, and the Psychoanalytic Mind, here at the New Books and Psychoanalysis podcast. Check out our website and feel free to email me with your comments and questions. Thanks for listening.